Welcome to Interpod, the global voices of Pride podcast powered by Interpride, where the world comes together for the LGBTQIA community. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our guest for today's episode is the executive director of San Diego Pride, Fernando Zweifak Lopez, who talks about stepping in at a critical moment for the organization, but also acknowledges how stepping in not only helped the entire community, but also for Fernando as well. Before we get to the interview, here's Michael Lavers and the Washington Blade with Global LGBTQIA News. This is Michael Lavers from the Washington Blade, America's LGBTQI news source. Lawmakers in Uganda on May 2nd once again approved their country's anti-homosexuality bill with a provision that calls for the death penalty for anyone found guilty of, quote, aggravated homosexuality, end quote. President Yoweri Museveni last month returned the bill to parliament. The revised version of the anti-homosexuality bill that lawmakers approved no longer criminalizes LGBTQI people for simply being LGBTQI, and it does not contain a provision that would have required Ugandans to report acts of homosexuality. The U.S. and other countries around the world have strongly condemned the measure and have urged Museveni to veto it. In other news, oral arguments in a marriage equality case in India ended in the country's Supreme Court on May 11th. Lawmakers in the Cook Islands on April 17th decriminalized consensual same-sex sexual relations. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu a few weeks earlier postponed proposed reforms to his country's judiciary that LGBTQI activists and many others have sharply criticized. Former Brazilian Congressman David Miranda on May 9th died in a Rio de Janeiro hospital after he had been in ICU for nine months. His husband, journalist Gren Greenwald, confirmed his death on social media. Victor Madrigal Borlos, the independent UN expert on LGBTQI issues, after he visited the UK from April 25th to May 5th, said he is, quote, deeply concerned about increased bias-motivated incidents of harassment, threats, and violence against LGBT people, including a rampant surge in hate crimes in the UK, end quote. Madrigal Borlo specifically cited, quote, abusive rhetoric by politicians, the media, and social commentators, end quote, that, quote, has trickled down to produce increasingly abusive and hateful speech against LGBT persons, end quote, in the UK. In the U.S., the Food and Drug Administration on May 11th announced men who have sex with men who were in monogamous relationships can now donate blood without restrictions. The new policy does not apply to prospective blood donors who have had a new sexual partner or more than one sexual partner in the past three months or those who were taking antiretroviral drugs, PrEP or PEP. Title 42, a pandemic-era policy that closed the U.S.-Mexico border to most asylum seekers and migrants, expired on May 11th. This is Michael Labors from the Washington Blade. Log on to WashingtonBlade.com to learn more about LGBTQI news around the world. My name is Fernando Zweifak Lopez, Jr. I am the executive director of San Diego Pride, and I use they, them, their pronouns. Would you mind sharing a coming out story for us? Sure. You know, I... <laughs> I don't know that there was ever an in for me. I was one of those kids. So there's this story that my family likes to tell uh, that the first day of kindergarten, um, I'm from El Centro, California. It's a small rural like farming community. 
Um, and I'm the product of migrant field workers from Mexico. And, you know, so you kind of know everyone in the small town, right? And uh, I stood uh, or first day of kindergarten and the teacher says like, okay, everyone like line up. Right. And I looked down and like already standing on this faded yellow line. So I'm like nailing it uh, first day of kindergarten, really proud of myself. And like, everyone's getting in this line. Um, and I realized there's two of them, but I was already on one. So like, why move? And the teacher comes up to me and says, um, you know, young man, you're in the wrong line. And sort of undaunted by that information, I just was like, looked up at her and I said, well, why? And uh, she said, well, little girls stand in this line and little boys stand in that line. And I just kept standing there and I looked at her and I said, well, why? And then she says, well, little girls go in first and then young boys can go in. And I said, well, that's not fair. Aren't we all the same? So like, I was just always that um, and always, I guess, trouble. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I had this very feminist mother, um, and uh, my mother's product of Jewish refugees and immigrants and like this Mexican Catholic father. So I was raised sort of with this understanding that there are going to be people that didn't like me because I was product of immigrants or because I was Mexican or because I was Jewish and definitely because I was both. Um, and both of their parents were disowned um, for being with each other and having me. Um, I, I'm the oldest. And so... Uh, they really instilled in me this idea of, you know, what discrimination looked like and um, what fairness would look like, but they weren't prepared for a gay kid. And um, I was teased and bullied all growing up. And it was not until I was 13 that I really came out to myself and understood what the word really was gay, um, that it wasn't a, a pejorative, that it was, you know, oh, guys like, yeah, like, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's easy. And then I um, I think I came out um, to my mom probably when I was 14 and, um, and that came out to my dad when I was 15. But coming out meant that I was uh, left with homelessness um, because they were not prepared for that. So like a lot of young queer kids, right, um, you end up on the street. And so um, I was homeless at 15 um, off and on for many years, um, but I was lucky to be a smart kid. Um, and graduate high school, I, I skipped a grade and, um, and uh, you know, I'm still here. So to tell that, that story. It doesn't surprise me of your courage and your strength because here you are now, we're here in Sydney, World Pride, but also, you know, you as a leader, you're the executive director of San Diego Pride. And I believe you took over during a, I, would, I guess, a critical moment in yeah. the organization's history. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think a lot of pride organizations folks will be familiar with like sort of the trauma that our organizations go through it's like marginalized folks we bring on a lot of trauma into the work and I think that sometimes plays out in organizational culture um, and board development things like that and and so our our organization was really trying to figure out who it was and how we served Um, there had been a series of challenges with our board with our staff um, for a number of years Um, and I was brought on to San Diego Pride by an incredible executive director, uh, Dwayne Crenshaw, who was the organization's first black executive director. And um, he really had this vision of turning us into an education and advocacy organization um, and, and invited me into the organization to help do that work. And the organization still really struggled for several years. And um, we had lost our most recent executive director and... Um, I was getting ready to leave the organization because of some of the challenges that we were going through, like, could we even make payroll? And 
Um, but the board asked me to come on and be the executive director. Uh, and I struggled with that. But um, ultimately, I, I, I said, obviously, I said, yes, I'm still here. Um, but we I, at that point, I had been the sixth executive director in seven years. So I think like, what was I thinking? Um, oh, my gosh. And, uh, and yeah, there was a there was a lot of organizational culture um, that wasn't really being addressed. And I, I look back at it now and I understand how much of that is sort of the ways that systemic trauma um, play themselves out in interpersonal relationships and organizational culture and development. Let's take it all the way back. I have so many questions because I think our conversation or the discussion that we're having for this episode could really affect and impact so many pride organizers around the world. Some of the issues that you talked about You know, these are everyday issues of so many of our pride organizations who are trying to get to the next season, really. Like we live paycheck to paycheck for a lot of pride organizers. Um, Well, let's start with the culture of San Diego. And what I mean by that is, you know, what pride meant to the community itself and what it's like to be LGBTQIA plus in San Diego. Everyone anywhere in any city sort of has an idea of what pride means to them. Like everyone takes ownership of pride. You know, um, we see ourselves in pride. Pride is so frequently the first thing that a queer person does that is gay, that is decidedly queer. Um, And so we feel a connection. We feel home. We feel safe. We feel joy. We feel love in daylight for the first time at prides. And so there's a deep intrinsic connection to our, our own sense of self, right? Um, is is these are organizations are these events and and that's true anywhere and that was definitely true in San Diego. Um, San Diego is um, a border community. Um, it's also the highest concentration of military personnel in the world. It's also one of the hubs of white supremacy and white nationalism cultivation um, in the United States. Uh, so it's a very bifurcated community. Um, but it, it's also very reflective of the United States in a lot of ways from the demographic diversity. And that said, many of our institutions in San Diego, just like so many others, were historically led by uh, cis white men and um, and to a very exclusionary sort of culture. Um, and you saw that play out in bars. Um, you saw that play out in organizations and in pride. Um, and so um, I came onto the organization at a time where Um, I think, you know, we had our first black executive director. It was their first Latino um, director of operations. Um, And so we we brought in a different lens. And I think that was a breath of fresh air for the community to see that there were two people who were actually deeply rooted in social justice work um, and not event planning. and and Dwayne, um, the CEO at the time, made that really clear that we were there because of our social justice lens on the world. And, and we did our best to weave that into the organization. Thank you so much. Now, talk to us about, OK, the critical part of when you stepped in and I mean, you said it, it was like you didn't even know if you could make payroll. Right. So funding had to be the very first thing that was top of mind. But in a community like San Diego, with large military presence and, um, you know, and, and, and having its specific nuances of where it's located, who did you go to first, like, for, for funding, for support? What came to mind? So I, I took a 
gamble, I guess. Um, I, I've been managing businesses of over a million dollars since I was 18 years old. Um, and I, I knew that if we didn't invest in staff, we wouldn't be able to save the organization. So I did the opposite thing that I think folks might think of. And I spent more money more quickly um, in order to raise more money and do more. So I actually increased the staff immediately from three to seven. Um, and I put a deep emphasis on our communication skills uh, or, and efforts that one of the things that we had going for us was a strong social media presence and a strong email list. And we had never really utilized that. Like I was never allowed to utilize that to the best of our ability. And so what we did was we really started telling the story of our organization and our community every single week. So I write a newsletter uh, every single week um, now for five years. Um, and because of my background in um, LGBT advocacy and policy, right, I worked for the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, Equality California. I've done work with the Victory Fund and political organizing and Marriage Equality USA. So like I have a lot of background in like the history of our community and organizational grassroots like development and things like that so I said you know I'm gonna write a newsletter every single week as though I'm talking to my friend across the table at a cup of coffee um, and, and just explain the issues that are really important to our community and write that newsletter like so that someone can read this and feel like I'm talking to them and feel like it's accessible information where you're hearing sort of historical context um, contemporary uh, specific issues and then how to get involved in some way, which didn't always mean our organization, right? Sometimes it meant other organizations. And so it was approaching our communication strategy with an abundance mindset and really amplifying and lifting up other activists in the region and other organizations. And that in of itself started to break down, I think, some barriers and, and some trust that we had lost as an organization that people were seeing that, oh, there's a new leader there who is really doing their best to utilize the power of that organization to support other nonprofits that are doing LGBT social justice work. And I think doing that first sort of helped everyone drop their shoulders, you know what I mean, and, and, and loosen up. And um, so that was the first part. The second part was I, I delayed a lot of our contracts. So normally we might sign contracts really early and have things done in you know, January or February. And instead what I did was I just got our quotes and they said, okay, well, I'll give you the deposit in May um, or June. And, uh, and that worked because we had a long history of you know, being able to pay our bills. So there was no questions about that. Um, and then we sort of changed the expectations for our sponsors. I think we... We as queer people, um, and especially cutie BIPOC folks, like there's so much imposter syndrome. We don't see our own value, and sometimes we undervalue our organization. Um, and so we we take this money from corporations, but like these corporations are giving us pennies, and we're begging for it, and then we're giving them the moon to the point where, you know, sometimes we're losing money on some of these sponsorship deals. And I just wasn't going to do that, and so um, I reduced the amount that we were giving to our sponsors. I increased the sponsorship levels and we gave them a 30 day turnaround. Um, and so it was a way of 
we had to see the value in ourselves and what we were doing as an organization. And that helped these other businesses see our value, right? Um, and so the sponsor dollars came in and they came in more quickly and the contracts were um, for, you know, our vendors and exhibitors, like we didn't have to pay that until later. And so those few steps just sort of helped financially to turn the organization around. So give us a snapshot. When you first walked in, what was the budget? How many people worked for the organization? And then now where are you at? We were at three employees. We were about a $1.1, $1.2 million organization. Um, and uh, we will soon be 30 employees with a $6.5 million budget. Um, and so that, that we turned that around in just the last five years. Um, and it's, it, I, you know, homeless kid from the middle of nowhere. Like I still have these pinch me moments. Like we're even having this conversation in Sydney, which is, you know, sur surreal to think of how a values-based approach to organizational development could could really help this organization bloom and um, and I can watch these queer uh, just professionals blossom and serve community and that is an incredible privilege. My goodness, congratulations and gosh, we are so lucky to have you in our community and you're sharing you know the knowledge um, just so generously as well, which, Leads me to a couple more questions before we let you go. Go back to the Human Rights Conference because there are some amazing discussions that are happening and I want you to go and experience that. Um, if there is a pride organization, and there are, there are many around the world who are struggling and just like what I said, right? Like living paycheck to paycheck or at that critical moment when you stepped in where it was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay my people. What's some advice or piece uh, it, it could be a piece of advice or recommendations uh would you have <laughs> so there there is one thing I, a couple things that i would say maybe um start where you are use what you have do what you can it's an arthur ash quote um and it was sam toron who was one of the presidents of pflag um na uh, national pflag that used to say that all the time to me um because as your grassroots organizers, right, like that's all you can do is start where you are, use what you have and do what you can. I think sometimes we we want so much to be seen, we want so much to be heard, and we want to be sometimes the big person in the room. Um, but why not just be yourself? And why not let yourself and your organization really reflect your own community and, and who you really are as a person, what your values really are, what your organization and community's values are. And, and if you start there, um, I think you'll get to a better place and at least a place that you want to be than trying to make yourself into something that you're not. Um, you know, you, you mentioned like we're here at this Global Human Rights Conference and, and we really do approach with this abundant abundance mindset and San Diego Pride is one of the founding organizations of Interpride, right? There's this like legacy of our organization supporting, mentoring, connecting prides and people all over the world. And I, I take that value to heart. Um, and it was one of my other early mentors, Aida Mancias, a Chicana artist, activist, poet, um, that just one day she said to me, you know, the thing is you want to change the world, but you can't. But what you can do is tend to your garden and teach others to do the same. And that's how you change the world. And I, that's always stuck with me. And I, you know, as I sit here, like uh, tearing up, um, 
um, in Sydney. Uh, I, that's so real. Like that's what we get to do. And that um, is such a joy. Right. And so, um, you know, take care of each other and, and teach other people to do that too. Thank you so much, Fernando. And thank you to the San Diego Pride team. Thank you for hosting the World Conference this year. That's coming up this fall in October. And so please register and learn more by heading to enterpride.org. From there, you can also listen to all past episodes of Interpride. This is Interpride, the global voices of Pride podcast powered by Interpride, where the world comes together for the LGBTQIA community.